The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. Not also with him graciously give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is uh, interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we were being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you're in kindergarten through fifth grade and you would like to go to Children's Church, please join our volunteers by the Kids Zone sign. If it is your child's first time in Children's Church, please go with them so we can get them checked in. Good morning. My name is Mark, and as Sammy said, Steve and I get to be installed as pastors next Sunday, so... I can finally just say I'm on staff and not fumble over all the other things I've been trying to do. Uh, Let me pray and then we'll jump in. Father, we thank you for your great love that you showed us, that we know we will not be overcome uh, because Jesus overcame death itself. Would you open up our eyes to see the truth of your word this morning? Would you send your spirit to soften our hearts? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are at the end of a series in Romans chapter 8. We've been doing this for about two months. And really, eight kind of crescendos. And Paul is saying, look back at everything I've said in the past eight chapters. He didn't write in chapters. He just wrote. And then we added chapters later. But he's saying, look back at everything I've written before. And it all crescendos into this. Uh, We will not be overcome. We're more than conquerors. And so if you're familiar with the book of Romans, the whole argument, Paul starts off in Romans 1 and he says, you can just look outside of creation and know that at the very least that there is a God. It is so complex, it's so intricate, there's a God. And he says that's good news, but the bad news is that we have all sinned against this God, even the religious types. Uh, He says we all sinned, we fall short of God's glory, he says the wages of sin is death, it's bad news after bad news. And then Romans 8, the very first verse, he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then he just kind of lays out what incredible news that is. And then when we come in, we've just seen the tail end of this, that it is God's design and desire to take your pain and your confusion, your sadness, your loneliness, your tears, your regrets, and instead of just erasing them or denying them or somehow making you pay for them, God is going to use your sin and do with what he did with Jesus on the cross, right? God is going to do with your suffering and all the junk in your life and do what he did with Jesus on the cross. What does that mean? 
A friend of mine who's a pastor used to love asking people, hey, was, was the death of Jesus the worst thing that's ever happened or the best thing that's ever happened? I mean, imagine you were one of the disciples. You have left everything to follow Jesus. You've been wandering around for about three years. You think he's this Messiah. You know the Old Testament. God has promised someone to come and fix things, to come and put an end to the oppressors. And you're excited. He says, it's Jesus. And then they put him on a cross and they crucify him. That's a bad day, right? That doesn't even take into account that Jesus is God himself come in the flesh He's perfect. He's sinless. He was the very embodiment of love and compassion. And he was murdered by the very people he created. At the light of the world, snuffed out by darkness. Or so it seemed. Because on the third day, when Jesus rose again from the dead, the disciples finally start to see that what God was doing was so much better than what they had in mind. Right? Jesus didn't just come to help out the Jewish nation, kind of be free from the Roman oppressor's Jesus comes to do away with death and sin. Jesus' death on the cross was without a doubt the worst thing that's ever happened in human history, but it's also the best thing that's ever happened. Christianity is is the only religion that handles suffering well, I think, because it doesn't turn a blind eye to suffering and say, you know, well, this world doesn't really matter. We're just kind of spiritual beings. We'll beam up into the clouds at some point. So it doesn't matter what happens here. Uh, And it doesn't just give us trite, simplistic answers about it either. It is the only worldview where God enters into our suffering. He endures suffering in order to fix our suffering. And as Ben looked at last week in the passage right before this, in order to work our suffering for ultimate good. In the last book of Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, I reread it like every other year. It's so good. Uh, Samwise Gamgee, he helps Frodo destroy the ring in Mount Doom. Spoiler alert. Uh, He passes out from exhaustion on the side of this volcano, and he wakes up in his nice comfy bed, and his buddy Gandalf is sitting there right next to him. And if you're familiar with the books or the movie, Sam hasn't seen Gandalf since the first book when he was in the mines of Moria, and he defends all of his friends from the Balrog. And I'll stop using those words. Uh, And he falls into the chasm, and they think he's gone. And Sam says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. So, but then think, again, I thought I was dead. And he says one of my favorite lines in all of literature. He says, is everything sad going to come untrue? Beautiful. And if the Apostle Paul were a Tolkien fan, which I'm sure they've met by now, and I'm sure they are buddies, uh, the answer Gandalf gives is the same answer that Christianity gives. And it's a resounding, yes, everything sad will come untrue. Because God is sovereignly working all things together for good. And if that is what God is doing, if Jesus not only died for you, but he also rose for you, do you see why Paul is so worked up in our passage this morning? I mean, if this were written today, he'd be writing in all caps with all kinds of like fire emojis and all kinds of stuff that he could do it. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If the God who created this world entered into its brokenness in order to fix it, in order to fix you and you're standing before God, he's saying, what more could you possibly ask? What could you be worried about? And so I think the question that we all have to ask was, how do I know that God is for me? I mean, for many of you who are here and you're new to Christianity, or maybe you're not sure what you believe, but you're investigating it. Many of you are starting to think, you know, is this whole Christianity thing going to be worth it? 
Like this seems interesting. Part of it's are starting to make sense. I really like the parts about God's love and his forgiveness and how he wants justice. The people at this church seem like they're halfway normal. Uh, is it going to be worth it going all in, trying to actually obey Jesus' commands, right? Is it going to be worth it letting Jesus have the final say in what's wrong and what's right, and as opposed to me just doing whatever feels good in the moment? I'm going to have to give up some things. Is it going to be worth it kind of aligning myself with God? And if you've been a Christian for a while, maybe you can remember thinking that. But after following Jesus and having the Holy Spirit change your heart to making you want to line up more and more with Jesus, you start to think the exact opposite, don't you? Some of you have experienced God's goodness and his patience, and you're wondering, why would God stick with a person like me? Like what in God's eyes makes it worth it to align himself with me? I've gone against God so many times, surely he's just sick of me confessing the same sins every week. Is God really for me? And if you come, if you consider yourself a Christian, there will come a time in your life where your sin is going to make you question God's love for you. And if it isn't your sin, then it's going to be a really crummy string of circumstances that happen in your life. And you're going to think, is God getting back at me for something? Does he not love me anymore? And this is exactly what Paul is talking about, isn't it? Look at verse 33. He says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? In verse 34, who is to condemn? In other words, if God is for you and if God forgives you, who else is there to bring up charges against you? In verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then Paul lists off a bunch of really crummy circumstances that Paul himself endured. He says, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? I mean, do you know how many times in the book of Acts, Paul was beaten and stoned and whipped and chased out of town and his boat crashed like a lot. Like that's just kind of what happened in Paul's life. It was just a crummy, always kind of having to swim to shore kind of life. Um, for many of us this morning, at one point or another, we've wondered, is, is God really for me? Does he love me? Have I chased him off? Have I blown it? Right? To quote Alexander Hamilton, have I thrown away my shot? Right? And why do we fear that? Why do we start to doubt God's kind of for usness? Is it not because we acknowledge that we have some guilt before God? We know that if God were to judge us based solely on our thoughts and our words and our actions, we're toast. Right? If God is perfect and he's a holy God who's going to make all things new and have this new heavens and the new earth, you and I don't belong in that world on our own. So really, I think the question is, why does God move towards us in the first place? Right? Why does God give us hearts that want to know and love him? Why does he open up our eyes to the truth of Scripture? Uh, I love getting to do weddings, all the excitement, celebration. I love kind of pointing out just how a marriage is meant to reflect Jesus' relationship to the church. And I really enjoy the premarital counseling that happens before. And what I'll do if I don't know the couple, I'll, I'll just ask them, hey, why do you guys want to get married? And the more I do that, the more I think I probably need to stop doing that because it never ends very well. Uh, this, I think my favorite time I asked the guy, I said, hey, why do you want to marry this girl? And like, without hesitating, he goes, oh, sh because she's really organized. It's like, guys, that's not the answer. That's not the right answer. Uh, but, but really, think about it. The answer to that question is always going to be a dangerous one, isn't it? 
Because if you say, I want to marry this person because they are just drop-dead gorgeous, well, looks change. If you say, I want to marry this person because they've got a really good job, they can support me financially, you can lose your job. Jobs can change very quickly. All right? People change, their hobbies change, their personalities change, they can fall into an addiction that totally changes their behavior. If you love someone because of a particular aspect or a possession or trait they have, not only will you stop loving them when that's taken away, but you're going to crush them with those expectations for them to keep whatever that is. God, on the other hand, loves you because he loves you. If you want to look up Deuteronomy 7 after worship, it's a great place where God tells his people in very unflattering terms why he chose them. This is Deuteronomy 7, 7. It says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. In other words, God loves you because he loves you. Earlier in the book of Romans in chapter 5, Paul puts it this way. He says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you see that? God loves you not because you're so spiritual. God loves you not because of all the great things you've done or the great things you will do. God loves you because he loves you. It's not a conditional love. And if God's love for you is not dependent on anything you do or have done or haven't done or what you have, a love that is unconditionally given to you cannot be taken away because of something you do. Does that make sense? I mean, I need to tell myself that on a regular basis. Because the love of God isn't like our love. It's kind of a fluctuating thing. We're on Tuesday. I just thought about that song, Tuesday, I'm in love, or Friday, I'm in love. It's, you know, it's, you're feeling really good about this on Tuesday, and then Thursday, well, maybe the fire's kind of died. God is not going to fall out of love with you. Look back at verse 32. This is the love that God has for you. It says, He, God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And verse 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? This is so important for us to get. What does it mean that Jesus is interceding on our behalf? Do you want to know how you can know that God loves you and he is for you? That not only did God love you when you first came to Jesus, when you kind of felt like you had your life a little bit more together maybe, but that God will continue to love you no matter what? You, if you consider yourself a Christian, you have an advocate in Jesus. And as your advocate, Jesus stands at the right hand of the Father and he pleads your case. And when you put your faith in Jesus and you have him as your advocate, you know what his kind of closing argument is? It's not, Father, please forgive this man or this woman. Uh, They promised to try harder. There were some really crazy circumstances that happened that kind of led them to do what they did. They'll do better next time. Please have mercy on them. Jesus is not begging the Father to have mercy on you. He's begging him to have justice. Right? He's saying, Father, your law demands payment. If someone breaks your law, there is a payment that must be given. The wages of sin is death. But Jesus says, I've already lived and I've already died in their place. 
right? And the blood of Jesus, infinitely pure, infinitely spotless, is able to pay the debt that you and I owe to God. So Jesus isn't asking the Father for mercy or to forgive just one more time, and it's all in us after that. Jesus is pointing to the work that he did on the cross when every ounce of God's wrath was poured out on him. And he says, as he did on the cross, it's finished. The debt has been paid. It would actually be unjust of God to demand a second payment for that debt. Uh, There's an old hymn by Charles Wesley. I don't think we've sung it in a while. That Arise, My Soul Arise. Beautiful hymn. And one of the lines is, he says, Five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransomed sinner die. If you are in Christ, you have been ransomed by the blood of Jesus. And not only are you permanently forgiven and you're permanently declared right in God's eyes, but you are adopted into his family. You are joyfully welcomed into God's family. And if God is your father, there's not a thing you can do to stop being his son or his daughter. Amen? So please, when your sin bubbles up and tries to accuse you and tries to convince you that maybe you've lost God's love, look to Jesus. Not just Jesus on the cross, not just in the grave, but to the risen Jesus who is even now interceding on your behalf. I think one more thing we need to say about this. When, what happens when really terrible things happen in your life? Just a string of crummy circumstances, not getting that job, getting that diagnosis, not getting that family that you wanted, that relationship that fell apart or never happened in the first place. What about, as Paul says in verse 35, tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? He says, we're being slaughtered like sheep. That's a quote from the Old Testament. In other words, God's people in the Old Testament and the New Testament and today have never had it any easier off than the rest of the people in the world. Right? So please don't believe that thought that once you believe in Jesus, everything is going to be so much easier and something must be off if you have a hard life. Right? You have an ultimate destination that will be perfect and you'll be in God's presence and there will be no more pain or tears or sickness or death that's coming. But the Bible is very clear this life is going to be a life of hardship and suffering. And if you don't quite believe that, look to Jesus. You know, we, we hear God the Father speak kind of audibly twice in the New Testament. You know what he says both times? He says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Like, this is my boy. I'm proud of him. I love him. And by all accounts, Jesus lived an incredibly difficult, uncomfortable life that ended in a humiliating public execution. The father loves the son. The father has an incredible plan for the son, and yet he had a mess of a life. I look back at verse 32. It says, If the father did not spare his own son, whom he loves, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God was willing to give us a son to let Jesus stand in our place, and if the son was willing to be a substitute for us, right? If Jesus joyfully lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died, if Jesus endured impossible things that you and I never could, how can we possibly think that he couldn't love us when we are asked to endure hard things? I'm sure most of you are aware by now by about these epic Taylor Swift concerts that have been happening the past couple of weeks. Anybody go to those? Yeah, 
because you had to pay like thousands of dollars to get them. Or you, maybe you get really lucky and got a good ticket. But I want you to imagine that, you know, somebody comes to you and they said, hey, I found front row tickets to Taylor Swift. They were incredibly expensive. And I bought two of them for you and I want them to give them to you. Free of charge. It's in Nashville this weekend. Yes, that's what I would do. <laughs> now, imagine if you're a, if you're a Swifty, like I am, <laughs> there is no universe where you look at that friend and say, oh, Nashville, it's two hours away. You must not really love me to make me do that. That, that. No way is that my response. I'll drive to New Jersey to go see Taylor Swift if somebody gives me free concert tickets. And my point is not to downplay these truly awful and painful things that you and I will experience in this life. But it is to say, as verse 37 says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. He's saying, I can handle anything because I know what's coming. I know that God loves me and nothing can break that. In the garden and on the cross, Jesus was being abandoned by his closest friends, being abandoned by the Father, the cup of God's wrath and his perfect justice for sin is being poured out and full onto him. At any moment, Jesus could have just snapped his fingers and be done with it. Could have come off the cross. He could have called down legions of angels to wipe out his enemies, his human enemies. He could have escaped all of it. And all he had to do was just give up on us. All he had to do was, was just not atone for the sins of his people. Just not offer himself up as a substitute and just walk away. Jesus was tortured, abandoned, mocked, humiliated, nailed to a cross, bore the wrath that we deserve, and a quote Charles Spurgeon, in the greatest act of love this world has ever seen, Jesus stayed. Hell itself threatened to separate us from the love of God in Christ, and yet he stayed for you and for me. You know, Jesus stayed on the cross and endured hell for you, was forsaken by the Father for you, to purchase you with his own blood, do you, do you honestly think that anything you can do is going to chase him off now? Do you think that having a bad week or a bad month or a bad year can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus if the cross couldn't do it? If your circumstances have gone from bad to worse over the past weeks, past years, and you're tempted to think that God has abandoned you, that he's no longer for you, if Jesus did not abandon you on the cross, why would he abandon you now? There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Father, if you are for us, who could possibly be against us? Even though you are very clear that hard things are still going to happen, painful things, things we wouldn't worse wish on our worst enemy. We know that it doesn't mean you don't love us when we experience those. We thank you for Jesus bearing an impossible weight that we deserve so that we get to call you our father and you smile at us as you would a son or a daughter. Lord, would you let that love you have for us just propel and direct everything in our lives? the way we interact with each other, the way we work, the way we spend our money, the way we spend our free time. 
We are loved by the God of the universe. We thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Propel and direct everything in our lives. The way we interact with each other, the way we work, the way we spend our money, the way we spend our free time. We are loved by the God of the universe. We thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.